Perhaps the most consequential event that takes place in Parshas Chukas is Hashem's pronouncement that Moshe and Aaron will not go into Eretz Yisrael, they will not lead the Jewish people into the land of Israel. And therefore, the question, the question that occupies almost all of the Mepharshim's attention is, why not? What was Moshe's sin? What did he do that was so bad that deserved such a consequential and serious punishment? The story which precedes this pronouncement is in the beginning of Parachof, the Sefer Bamidbar, the first 13 Sukkim. And the context is that after the death of Miriam, the people rise up to complain about a lack of water. Hashem instructs Moshe to take his mateh, his staff, gather the people to speak to the rock, and it will give forth water. Moshe gathers all the people, and he says, Shimuna Hamorim, listen up, O you rebellion ones, from this rock can we bring water? And then, Vayarem Moshe es yado, Vayach es He lifts up his hand, and he hits the rock two times, lots of water comes out. Immediately afterwards, Hashem says to Moshe and Aaron, Ya'an since you do not believe in me to sanctify me, to sanctify my name in front of the Jewish people, therefore you will not lead the people into the land of Israel. The simple wording of the text in our Parsha, as well as three other times, twice later in Bamidbar and once in Sefer Devarim, all of those times explicitly confirm what is pretty explicit in our Parsha as well, that it is this incident at the May Mariva, as it's known, that is the reason why Moshe and Aaron don't go into Eretz Yisrael. While there is a minority view that gives a completely different explanation, because of these psukim, the overwhelming majority of Rishonim do locate this episode as being the basis for the punishment. Nevertheless, even if it is in this incident, the actual sin still remains shrouded in mystery and subject to a major, major debate. There are numerous, numerous interpretations offered by the Mepharshim, but we will share just the three perhaps most famous and well-known of the interpretations. The first and the most well-known interpretation is that of Rashi, based on earlier sources in Chazal. Rashi says Moshe's sin was that he hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock. Hashem explicitly commanded him to speak to the rock, and Moshe made a mistake and hit the rock. Different Mepharshim who go with Rashi's interpretation explain why Moshe could have made that mistake. But suffice it to say, according to Rashi and opinions in Chazal, this was the basis of his error. This was the basis of his sin. And as Rashi explains, the consequence or the seriousness of this is because had Moshe merely spoken to the rock and the rock then given forth water, the people would have been able to learn from this and said, just like a rock that does not hear, that does not speak, that does not need sustenance, and even it listens to God's word, so all the more so, Kavachomer, we must listen to God's word. And that, the idea that you have to really listen to what Hashem says, that was an opportunity that was lost when Moshe chose to hit the rock instead of speak to the rock. That is Rashi's interpretation. And that is why, according to Rashi and others, Moshe and Aaron, I guess, as the uh, silent assistant, are punished. The Rambam, in his well-known ethical commentary and in the introduction to Perk Yavos, known as the Shmona Prakim, in the fourth chapter, Perk Dalid, the Rambam gives it an entirely different explanation. And the Rambam says this is an example of inappropriate midos. That is to say, Moshe's real sin, the real reason he's punished, is because he got angry at the people. Shimonah Hamarim, he screamed at them, listen to me, O rebellious ones, why did he have to scream at them? Moshe, Hashem didn't tell him to scream at them. There's no evidence in the Pesach that Hashem was angry. Moshe decided after Hashem told him to speak to the rock, 
instead of just speaking and even then hitting the rock, which is not what the Rambam considers the main issue, but Moshe on his own seems to lose his temper and screams at the people. Shimon HaMarim. Says the Rambam, anger is a terrible midah in general, but in this case it was particularly bad. First of all, because he's a leader, so he's setting a bad example. Plus also, it might imply that if Moshe is angry, it must be that Hashem is angry. But as I mentioned, there is nowhere, says the Rambam, in the actual text here, that Hashem is angry. We have many other examples of Hashem expressing his anger about the Jewish people to Moshe, but not in this story. And therefore, it is Moshe's anger that is the root of the sin and why he deserved this punishment. That is the second interpretation of the Rambam. The third interpretation is that of the Ramban. Ramban quotes both of these aforementioned perushim and rejects them both. Rashi, he says, can't be right, because after all, Moshe is told by Hashem to take his mateh. He is told to speak to the rock, but he's also told to take the mateh. And the Ramban thinks it's very reasonable to assume that Moshe was supposed to speak and hit the rock. Who said he wasn't supposed to hit the rock? And therefore he rejects Rashi, because if he was not supposed to hit the rock, why would Hashem have told him to take the mateh in the first place? If he was told to take the staff, Mustama, presumably he was supposed to actually hit the rock. Secondly, he rejects the Rambam as well. After all, while it's true that uh, the Torah itself never uh, mentions that Hashem was upset about Moshe's anger, but we can certainly presume that they were ungrateful yet another time. Why should we assume that Hashem wasn't angry? And therefore, Moshe was perhaps just channeling Hashem's anger. So he doesn't like that explanation either. Rather, says the Ramban, <coughs> what he thinks is the correct explanation, is one from Rabbeinu Hananel, who points out that right after that statement of Shimon HaMarim, and right before he actually hit the rock, Moshe says, Hamin From this rock can we bring forth water. We, notsimayim, implying that it was they, Moshe and Aaron, who had the ability who would be taking out the, the water from the rock. It should have said, quotes the Ramban, Yotsimayim, will he be able to, will HaKadosh Baruch Hu be able to bring out water? But by saying notsimayim, they were, perhaps even by accident and incidentally, but nevertheless, it appeared through their language that they were looking to take credit for the water coming out, and that was the ultimate mistake. The Ramban there interprets, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu then says, Yan lo Israel, you didn't create a Kiddush Hashem, you didn't sanctify a name, meaning not only did you not instill belief in me by giving me the credit, but worse than that, by you seeming to take credit yourself, you undermined me with your words. So we have three possible interpretations. Either they hit the rock, or they got angry, or it looks like they were taking credit for themselves. Nevertheless, as Ramban himself says, this, and especially the severe punishment, remains one of the great mysteries of the entire Torah. Parshas Chukas includes the tragic deaths and passing of both Miriam and Aharon. And the Gemara in Moed Kutten talks about both of these deaths, the pathing of both of these tzaddikim, when the Gemara asks, why is the death of Miriam, nismacha, why is it juxtaposed to the laws of Paraduma? And the Gemara answers that just like the Paraduma is mechaperes, it brings atonement, so too misas tzaddikim, the death of the righteous, in this case Miriam, will also bring atonement. And the Gemara also asks the same exact question with the death of Aaron in our Parsha. Why is the death of Aaron, Nismacha, why is it juxtaposed to a Parsha, to a selection in the Torah that discusses the Big Day Kahuna, the close of the Kohen? And the Gemara answers, similarly, just like the Big Day Kahuna bring Kapara, the Kohanim can only do their service in the base of Migdash when they're wearing their special Bigadim, the Big Day Kahuna, 
and therefore the big day kahuna are necessary for kapara. So too, just like the big day kahuna cannot achieve kapara, so too again, misa sadikim, the death of the righteous. In this case, our own brings kapara. So we have the same principle idea of misa sadikim mechaper, the death of the righteous brings atonement, and we have two different examples with two different models or metaphors for this idea, respectively the paraduma and the big day kahuna. Rav Kook, in a sefer called Midbar Shur, which if memory serves is a collection of his Divrei Torah that he delivered in a small stage in the early part of his rabbinic career when he was in Switzerland. It's an early stage of his uh, life, way before he became the famous Rav Kook. But in that beautiful sefer Midbar Shur, he addresses this Gemara, this episode in our Parsha, and he asks two questions. One very fundamental, one less so, but still very interesting. The fundamental question is, how does this whole idea of Misa Tzadikim Mechaper work? What does it mean to say that because a tzaddik, a righteous person died, therefore other people, the entire generation perhaps even, gets atonement? There is an idea that death itself is a kapara, and that's not exactly easy to understand either, but at least that means that the actual person, the man or the woman who died, so their death is some form of a kapara for them. But how is the death of one person, in this case a tzaddik, whether it's Miriam or our own or any other tzaddik, how does that achieve kapara for other people, let alone the nation as a whole or an entire generation? That is a very fundamental question that needs to be understood if we don't have any idea of what this concept is. The second question asks Rav Kook is not as broad and as fundamental, but still quite interesting, which is if we're going to make that point, why does the Gemara need two different stories and two different models to make that point? Right? It's the same point in both parts of the Gemara, so why do we repeat it, but once using the Paraduma as the model, and the second time using the priestly clothing, the Big Day Kahuna as a model? It seems to be redundant. Why was it necessary for two different things? So in order to address this, Rav Kook posits the following theory. How does Misa Tzadikim work? And even though a question like that could easily be answered in a somewhat mystical vein, and Rav Kook was certainly uh, attracted to mystical ideas, in this case he gives a very non-mystical answer, one that I think is easily accessible to all of us. Says Rav Kook, the way Misa Tzadikim works is that we become aware of many of the attributes and accomplishments of the Tzadik, and that inspires us to emulate them. We are inspired, there's a certain moral awakening we're inspired and we try to live up to and emulate the tzaddik's attributes. That could happen in the tzaddik's lifetime too, but very often there are many aspects of the tzaddik of any great person's uh, accomplishments which are hidden from public view, sometimes coincidentally and very often by design. The person is tzanua, they're private, they're modest, and it's only after the death at the shiva, at the funeral, hespedim, at other articles we read, books of tribute we read, biographies, and then after the tzaddik dies we learn about that person and we can get inspired to try to emulate their attributes. Cesar of Cook, if we, if, it's, it's not a guarantee, it's not automatic when the tzaddik dies, we're all forgiven. If we'll be inspired and learn and emulate and grow from learning about the tzaddik after his or her death, then that achieves a certain level of kapara. That's spiritually edifying and redeeming. That's point number one that addresses the fundamental question. Then Rav Cook, in addressing the second question, points out that if we think about it, every tzaddik, every great person's accomplishments really could be categorized into two broad categories. One are the type of things which any one of us, in theory at least, could emulate and could really achieve. If we worked hard enough, if we were disciplined enough, if we sacrificed enough, if we cared enough, then in theory we could also accomplish the same great things that the, these great people accomplished. That could certainly be in the realm of Benam Lechavero, generally interpersonal relationships, chesed, kindness, doing for others, 
even davening to some extent, what's stopping any one of us from being great daveners? We just have to care enough and work hard enough and try hard enough and eventually probably will come. So, says Rav Kook, those are things which we learn about the tzaddik and we can truly be inspired and hopefully then emulate. But there's a second category of accomplishments that many of these great, great people have had over our time in history. And those are things which are frankly beyond what any person could really accomplish if we haven't given the same natural gifts and blessings from Hashem that the tzaddik, that the great person was given. To the credit of the tzaddik, they have taken advantage of and utilized and developed their natural gifts. But if it wouldn't have been for the natural gifts, there's no way even they could have accomplished it. No matter, no amount of hard work or uh, effort could sacrifice, could, excuse me, could make up for a lack of that natural ability. Certain incredible, unbelievably near photographic memories or other brilliant intellectual abilities. If you don't have it, you just don't got it. And there's no way you can emulate it. So how can you, in that case, try to learn from the tzaddik about those aspects. Says Rav Cook, you can't do it yourself if you weren't given those gifts. What you can do is encourage our leaders, our great people who have been given those gifts to follow. And says Rav Cook, I guess with charity and other things, we can support people who will hopefully then have the training and the ability to achieve those things if they have been given those gifts. So the first thing we can actually do ourselves, the second category we can admire and we can help support and role model for other people who actually have the ability. Says Rav Cook, it's these two categories which are parallel to the two examples in the Gemara. Because the Paraduma, for all of its mystical mystery, it works on anybody, one person at a time, man or woman, doesn't matter, coin, levy, Yisrael, what shave it you're from, your tame, you sprinkle the ashes, you can get tahara, you can get kapara, so too, that's the first aspect of the tzaddik, anybody can achieve the same thing. But when it comes to the kohanim, only a kohen wears the clothing can achieve kapara. We all benefit from the kohen, so too, that's the second category of things which we can't do, but other people, if we support them, can help us. An often overlooked and certainly underappreciated aspect of Parshas Chukos is a story that occurs right at the end in the Maftir section of the Parsha in which we read about the Jewish people's defeat and in fact killing of Og, Melch Bashan, and his nation and his territory being conquered by the Jewish people. In anticipation of this battle, the Torah tells us that Hashem says to Moshe, Al tira oso, don't worry about him. Hashem says, I will give you the ability to successfully conquer Og and his nation and his land, and I will do, I'll help you do to them, just like you were able to do to Sichon Melech Mori, who you were also able to conquer with my help. Hashem gives Moshe this very reassuring promise, and in fact, as we read in the very next Pasuk, that is what happened as the Jewish people defeat Og Melech Bashan. And in fact, the Korn Chazal, Vayaku Oso, Vespanavas Kolamo, that in fact, not only was Og himself killed in this battle, but Korn Chazal, Moshe Rabbeinu himself killed Og. But the very fact that in the initial Pasuk that we read, that Hashem needs to reassure Moshe, Al Tira Oso, certainly implies that in fact, Moshe may have been scared. And in fact, Rashi, with a very brief citation of the Medrash, makes in fact that point. So I'd like to study the source of Rashi's comment, the full text of the Medrash, which is in the Medrash Rabbah, in Bamid Barabbah, in Parsha Yutes, Simen Lamed Bet. And there, the Medrash makes beautiful comments, which I think can provide us two different lessons going forward. The Medrash begins and says that 
the fact that Hashem tells Moshe not to worry, this can be understood in light of the famous admonition in Mishlei Perk Kavches, Ashrei Adam Mefachei Tamid. In fact, it's a very good thing to always have. Yiras Shamayim, Yiras Hachet, Tzadikim are always worried that they are making sure they're doing the right thing, always concerned that even though they seem to be living very admirable lives as far as we're concerned, but from their perspective, they're always nervous that maybe they won't have enough schusim to do what needs to be done. And in fact, the Medrash says, V'chein hi midas ha-tzadikim. Just like Moshe was worried, which is what Hashem needed to reassure him, Moshe was worried because he was fulfilling this idea of Ashri Ad Tamid, and this is the way of Tzadikim of all times. Even when Hashem says not to worry, but instinctively they always are worried if they will be up to snuff, if they will have the right zchusim, if they're doing the right thing. And the Medrash gives one famous example, the Chain Yaakov, where we are told that Yaakov himself, when he had his dream with the ladder, Vayira Yaakov, he was scared, and Chazal tell us, why was he scared? Maybe when I was by Lavan, I got caught up in sin, there was something wrong with me and my family, there may be Yira Ervas Dover, maybe I'll have something that will be problematic. And therefore, just like Yaakov embodied this Midah of Ashri Adam Mefachei Tamid, says the Medrash, Av Moshe here, and this speaks Parsha and Chukas, Tafas Asayira, he also was scared and worried that maybe he would be found lacking. After all, as the Medrash says, maybe either in the Jewish army, in their Milchama with Sichon, they had taken from the booty which they shouldn't have, maybe they were Ma'aluba Milchama Sichon, or maybe maybe in the military camp there was some kind of an erva or some other kind of impropriety. He was worried about that. Maybe that would compromise his ability to have enough zuchusim to defeat Og Melchabashan, and therefore, embellishing the Pasuk in our Parsha, says the Medrash, Amrlo Kodesh Altira, Kulan Hishlimu B'Tzedek. Don't worry, everything is good. You don't have to worry. Hashem says, I promise, I will take care of this. And the first thing that we should stress here is the importance of Yerushalayim. Simple as that. Uh, it's, I think, perhaps fashionable and, uh, and for understandable reasons that nowadays in schools, seminaries, yeshivas of all ages, uh, there's much more of a focus on Avodah Hashem Me'ahava and focusing on the positive and the love and makes t- total sense uh, to me with my own experiences and my own, with my own Talmidim, my own congregation, my own family. We are a door that certainly needs to put the Dagesh on Ahava and positivity. On the other hand, it would obviously be a mistake to completely abandon any focus on Yerushalayim. Just Ahava, just inspiration is not enough. We have to remember, Ashrei Adam Mafachei Tamid. There needs to be a core of Yerushalayim. Even if we emphasize other dimensions of Oros Hashem, we can never forget, Yaakov didn't forget it, Moshe didn't forget it, and if they needed Yerushalayim and Yerushchait, then certainly all of us need to do that as well. This episode at the end of our Parsha, this Medrash, certainly highlights that point. But the continuation of the Medrash highlights a, a different point, which is also very important. And that is that the Medrash goes on to explain why Moshe was particularly fearful of Og. After all, the Pasuk doesn't just say Al-Tira, the Pasuk in our Parsha says Al-Tira Oso, don't fear him. And the Medrash understands that Moshe had a particular fear of Og. And the Medrash seems to outline two different reasons why that might be. First, the Medrash describes how incredibly large and strong and how much of a gibor Og was. With various psukim and allusions to traditions that we have in the psukim or in Chazal about how incredibly powerful and strong um, Og was and how he survived 
various other stages of his history. He lived for many, many years, as the Medish will repeat in a second, and he was able to overcome many, many different catastrophes that fell even other great and strong people, going all the way back to the Mabul, according to Chazal. And Og always was able, because of his great gvura and his great might, to overcome those. So we're worried. Maybe we can't defeat such a powerful person. Moreover, says the Medrash, we know, according to Chazal, that in the story with Avram, where he has, he's told about his nephew Lot being taken captive, about what happened to Lot, and according to Chazal, this palit was none other than Og. And therefore, the Medrash says that Moshe was worried Maybe this is a zchus, this ches that he did to Avram is a zchus, after all, he's lived so many years, 500 plus years, says the Medrash. It must be that he has a zchus. And the Medrash says, no, don't worry, your zchus is greater, because really, Og didn't really have the right kavanas, he was hoping that Avram would go out to war and then be killed. And I think the message that we see from this continuation of the Medrash is that we shouldn't underestimate our enemies. Aside from physical advantages and brute strength and size which they have and have, they also often have their own zchusim. In the end, we learn that our zchusim were greater than Og's. But nevertheless, we should always take that seriously and take our enemies seriously as well. The whole story is somewhat surprising, unexpected, and even bordering on bizarre. The people are complaining to Moshe about their situation. Well, that's not surprising. That's unfortunately already commonplace. But they're complaining. Hashem gets furious at them. And he sends poisonous snakes Poisonous snakes who are biting and therefore endangering the lives, killing multitudes of the Jews, Vyamas Amrav Me Yisrael from these poisonous snakes, the Nechashim Han Serafim, Moshe Davins Tashem for salvation, and the salvation, the Yeshua that Hashem sends is by telling Moshe to make an image of, of all things, a snake, and he should place that on a pole that they should look up to. The Pasuk subsequently tells us that Moshe chose to make that out of a copper, Nachash Nachoshes. So they have this copper snake that's put on a pole, and Hashem tells Moshe, who tells the people, anyone who looks at that, Ura'oso v'chai, anyone who looks at this will live. So Moshe does it, he makes the copper snake, he puts it on the pole, v'hibit el nachash ha-nachoshes v'chai. And in fact, anyone who looked at it was saved Survived. This is the end of the Hamishi Aliyah. That's the story that ends the Hamishi Aliyah in Chukas. The whole thing is just, you know, so surprising. Again, if almost bizarre, poisonous snakes, copper snakes. What is going on? So, another question, a more basic question, is asked by Chazal, and Rashi actually quotes it. It's a mission in Masechus Rosh Hashanah, that's the primary source. I mean, what's going on? Hashem is punishing them. Hashem could punish them directly, and Hashem could certainly revive them and save them and heal them directly. Why does Hashem use this medium of poisonous snakes and then copper snakes? It's not the snake. The snake has no powers to really give life or death. Rather, says the mission, of course not. When the Jews would look up towards the pole, their eyes were directed towards the Shemayim. They're looking up. They would hopefully then see past the snake 
They would see up to Shemaim, they would do tshuva, they would daven to Hashem, mishabdin is libam la'avim, they would humble themselves, they would bind their hearts to Hashem, and that's why Hayum Misrapin says the Mishnah, and that's why they were ultimately healed. So, in essence, what comes out according to Chazal, Rashi quotes us from the Mishnah, is that this copper snake on a pole was really a method, a means of getting the people to turn their eyes, and more importantly, their hearts, to humble themselves and look towards Shemaim and recommit to Hashem to do tshuva for their past complaints. This is the Mishnah that Rashi quotes. Comes along the Sfas Emes in the year Tafresh Lamites 56.39 and he asks a very basic question. If really it's all about Hashem, all about humbling yourself and committing to Hashem and Shamayim, which of course it has to be, no one really thinks it's a copper snake. We don't believe in that kind of witch magic. Says the Sfas Emes, if that's the case, so then why not just have the people look up straight to Shamayim? Why not go directly to the source? Why do they have to go through this medium of looking at a nachash nachoshes, a copper snake? Bypass that, avoid all confusion, go directly straight to the source. Why doesn't Hashem just tell Moshe to tell the people to look up to Shamayim, to do tshuva to David, and then he'll heal them? What a basic and fantastic question that the Sfasemis asks. And he explains using a comment of the Ramban. The Ramban himself makes a brief comment here. Actually, it's a long piece, but the Tzvah takes out a brief comment of the Ramban, who adds the following, that Hashem, he says, generally has a preference, and this is a good example of it, says Ramban, to do a nes betoch nes. If Hashem is anyway going to break the rules of nature and do something out of the bounds of nature, what you and I call a nase, a miracle, Hashem often does it, prefers to do it, as a miracle within a miracle, a nase betoch nase. How so? Not only is some copper or whatever appearing to uh, heal the people, clearly looks like a miracle, That's that, that was not even a recognized medicine in the time of the desert, that was clearly miraculous, but of all things, the image that was uh, beat into this copper plate that was held up was, of all things, a snake. The very thing that had made them sick, that had endangered them. The venomous, deadly snake, that was what, in end, it's the image of that on the copper uh, sign on the post, that's what was healing them. That's a double nace, says the Ramban. Not only is there some copper symbolism thing seeming to heal them, but of all things, it's the copper uh, engraving of the very thing that made them sick wasn't a coincidence, says Ramban, but rather it was specifically, intentionally, the snake itself, the very thing that had gotten them sick, was now being the source of their healing. What is going on? Why is that important? So the Sfasemis explains that that's the deeper idea. At least this is how he understands the Ramban. That whatever healing power there was from looking at the copper snake, the fact that it was a snake of all things, communicated the message to the people that it was really, really Hashem who was healing you. Hashem could have told Moshe to make an engraving of a cluster of grapes or of a different kind of animal or who knows what. And then it would have, hopefully they would have realized it wasn't that, it was Hashem. But the fact that of all things it was the snake, the very thing that they associated with their sickness, the fact that their lives were at risk, that they were dying from this burning, poisonous sensation that from the bite of the snake, and now that very snake, an image of that, that's what they're looking at to heal them, that made it even more clear, says the Sfas Emes, that it was never the snake, not the real snake, not the image of the snake, it was never the snake. It's really Hashem who's healing you. Hashem who punished you because you complained, because you sinned, and Hashem who's punishing, who's, who's saving you, who's healing you. 
The larger message of Fasemis is that when you are looking at, in this case, or thinking about or doing physical things, gashmi things, whether it's medicine, in this case, healing power, or parnasa, or anything else, remember, it's really from Hashem. By seeing that it's the same thing that made them sick, that was now healing them, they realized that it was never the snake, as much as HaKadosh Baruch Hu guiding nature, guiding Teva. Nature is a mask, hiding the true identity, the fact that the author of everything is really HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But it requires, as the Mishnah said, histaklus. The Mishnah said, mistaklin kapaimala. Not just to glance, but to truly look, to look carefully, to look deeply. And then we can see beyond the mask, that the deep look, the essence, that everything is truly from Hashem. Parshas Chukas begins with the laws of the Para Aduma, and the Para Aduma, of course, is very, very famous for its mystery, for its being beyond human logic and apprehension. As Rashi tells us, this is the paradigmatic Chok, the category of mitzvos, which we don't seem to have any humanly you know, understandable reason, any rational reason to do them. These are the type of mitzvahs which the Satan, as it were, or other non-Jews, uh, other people will make fun of us for. And it's called a chok, a chukah, because it's firm, it's set. Even though you don't understand it, even though other people might question it or ridicule you, us for it, it cannot be moved, it is set, it is firm. We keep these mitzvahs even when we don't understand them. This introduction to the halachic lexicon of a chok, which is contrasted, of course, with mishpatim, mitzvahs where there seem to be more humanly understandable logic uh, for them, uh, brings up the issue which I'd like to very brief, briefly uh, outline some of the issues of, of, and that is the whole enterprise of Tameh mitzvot of understanding reasons for mitzvot, to what extent should we or shouldn't we do that, and more importantly for our purposes now, how much, if at all, can that impact the halacha itself, if we think we know the reason. So first of all, we have to realize that we can't look at all mitzvot in one lump sum, we have to distinguish between different categories. And the first category is mitzvot where the Torah itself gave us a reason. Many mitzvot, such as the shechita of the Karma Pesach, eating matzah, Shabbos, gifts to the kohanim, other things, if you take a look, and there's a few others as well, the Torah itself gives us a reason. It's not every mitzvah, it's not most mitzvahs, but it's not a teeny number either. It's a decent number of mitzvahs where the Torah itself gives us reasons and that we should keep those in mind. No question about it. The Torah gave us the reason. However, the Bach, this commentary to the Torah, Simon Ches, points out that there are three examples which are super examples. They're within this category, but they're even more intense. And that's where the Torah itself added the word Lema'an. Do this mitzvah Lema'an by giving us an explicit and desired goal or result of the mitzvah. So take maybe the easiest one to, to quote, Sukkah, sitting in the Sukkah on the first night of Sukkah, the Torah tells us, why do we do so? That for all generations you know that Hashem put us in Sukkahs when we left Egypt. So says the Bach, whether it's Sukkah, one example, number two, Tefillin, number three, Tzitzis, three examples where the Torah says, Laman, there's a specific desired result and goal of the mitzvah. So says the Bach, this is a big nafkamina. Because for these three mitzvahs, unlike the other 610, it's not sufficient to have general kavana that I'm doing the mitzvah. When I'm doing that action, I have in mind it's a mitzvah. That's sufficient for 610 mitzvahs, says the Bach. But for these three, the Torah goes out of its way to say, Laman, that when we're doing these mitzvahs, we have to have specific intention in mind. What specific intention? What the Torah said, Laman. So for example, with the sukkah, when you're doing the sukkah, you should have in mind that you're doing it to commemorate what Hashem did for us when we left Mitzrayim and we went into the desert. It's not enough to just say, oh, I'm doing this because it's a mitzvah. We have to have the more specific uh, 
kavana in mind. Even though uh, it sounds like from the Bach that if you don't do this, you're not Yotzei the Mitzvah, when the Mishnah Brewer brings this down, it seems like this is L'Chachila, it's a Hidur, we should try to do it, but if we did the Mitzvah properly with more general uh, Kavana, that would be sufficient. So this is that first category, we have two examples and two subcategories within it, but broadly speaking, the first category where we have reasons given in the Torah, and within that, as I say, we have this subcategory of three, which are super-duper reasons, because the Torah added the word Laman. We should note a cautionary tale of humility, that even when the Torah gave us a reason, the Rajbah says in a Tshuva, that even even then, we have to realize that there may be other ideas that are gavoa mi'al gavoa arein sof. That whatever the Torah reason the Torah gave us, but there might be other things that we can't even understand that are even beyond that, higher than the highest. So it's not for nothing the Torah gave us the reasons it did. We should realize that there might even be things beyond that. However, there is a second category, which is the bulk of the mitzvot, where the Torah itself doesn't give us a reason. And this gives a rise to the famous machlokes tanoim, whether we are dorshin tamel lekra or not. Do we try to understand the reason for the mitzvah and then let that, ap- that, let that reason impact the practical application of the mitzvah? Should the reason that we think we understand regulate the practical details of the mitzvah? Or do we say, no, if the Torah didn't give us a reason, the best we can do is speculate and therefore we can't have an impact. This is a machlokas between Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Yehuda around the classic example of the mission of Metziah about the Torah telling us you're not supposed to... Uh, take a collateral from a widow. Let's say a widow borrowed money, presumably she's poor and she needs the money, and usually you have a right to take a collateral as a lender, but from the widow you shouldn't take it. There's the machlokas. Do we assume that that's only talking about poor women, who nebuch, have so little money that as a result they can't really live without the mashkon, it'll require you every night to return the mashkon because they need it, and then the next morning you come back and get it, and the fact that this man is coming every night and every day to this woman's house, says the, Mish- the Gemara, maybe people will start talking and whispering bad rumors about uh, this this widow, And but a rich woman who doesn't need uh, you to return it every day, she can afford it, she gives you the collateral and that's it. No problem. The halacha only applies to the poor woman because we can understand the reason for the, for the pasuk and for the mitzvah. However, Rabbi Yehuda says no, and this is the opinion that's given in the Stam Mishnah, that the pasuk doesn't distinguish, the pasuk doesn't give a reason. Maybe you're right that that is the reason, but it doesn't matter. Since the pasuk didn't distinguish, the halacha applies across the board, whether the widow is very, very poor or whether she's the richest woman in the neighborhood. It doesn't matter. You simply cannot uh, do it. And that is a very, very big machlokas, and we generally assume that even though we may think we understand the mitzvah, and that is good for educational, philosophical, inspirational, and religious reasons, from a halachic perspective, we generally speaking would not make any halachic determinations and applications based on a reason, like the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda. Last but not least are the category of mitzvahs where even the Rish, even Chazal didn't do it, but the Rishonim themselves may have speculated. And there's a huge literature about this. Many, many examples, whether it's cooking uh, milk and meat together, Shiluach HaKain, so many examples. The Ramban has theories, the Rambam and the Mornevuchim, in the generation more recently in the Achronim, Rav Shem Shonafal Hirsch. And here, as a general rule, it's pretty clear that even if you are convinced of the reason, we would never use that reason to make a halachic application. Although every now and, there are, now and then there are post-given examples where people are willing to do it, but as a general rule, even if this is a good idea, and that's debatable, but I think most educators would think that nowadays it is a good, reason, a good idea, the more you understand a mitzvah, the more you're likely to keep it, but in this category it seems that there's not even a debate, overwhelmingly we would assume that if it's just a reason given by a Rishon, let alone an Achron, that will not affect the halacha.